0: Motherhood is Murder contains graphic and explicit content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Discretion is advised. Well, hello and welcome to episode 16 of Motherhood is Murder. My name is Valerie Cation. It is a Monday. We are we are still in school. I'm recording on June 19th and we are still in school. We are in school for another few days, but the kids are off today for Juneteenth. So if you hear background noise or anything, this is why it's like recording on a Sunday morning instead of a Monday morning, but such as it is. Summer is almost here for us though, and we're really looking forward to just some downtime together as a family and um maybe not as much running around as we have had in the past, but let's get into this case. So we're continuing our work of looking at captivity this month for the month of June. And I wanted to discuss a wrongful conviction case. And I'll talk a little bit more about why and why I see that under the guise, not the guise, that's not even the right word, under the umbrella of captivity and i wanted to cover a case in massachusetts as we usually do or in new england and so this week we will review the wrongful conviction of victor rosario we will also define wrongful conviction why it happens, and the impact of wrongful convictions on society. I learned so much while researching this case, and I'm looking forward to digging deeper with you. Although one may not ever see how wrongful conviction can be a type of captivity, I think it's important to realize that anytime someone is held in a position of being imprisoned or confined, that is the definition of captivity. For those who have committed a crime for which they have been convicted, this is a facet of society we expect. If someone does something that is against the law, you can be confined and removed from society in some way. However, if you are convicted of something that you have not done, confinement brings a whole host of problems and one that defies our expectations. Victor Rosario's case is especially problematic based on the length of imprisonment and the lengths by which it took to get him exonerated. So let's dive in. Victor Rosario was only 24 years old when he was convicted of arson and multiple counts of murder in Lowell, Massachusetts. On that day, back in 1982, Victor had witnessed a Decatur Street fire and upon hearing children screaming from inside tried to rescue the children by punching in a window the air from the window only fueled the fire and the children perished within the rescue attempt made headlines the next morning within eight hours of news and victor's name getting out victor was brought to the police station for questioning although there was no evidence of arson investigators determined that the cause of the fire was arson and they were determined to find a suspect. Police also suspected that the fire was started with a Molotov cocktail. And although they didn't find any evidence to this effect stuck to their story. When looking for a perpetrator, a witness had seen Victor at the scene. It's unclear from reporting whether the witness saw Victor's arm being raised or not. Inve- d- investigators determined that Victor must have had his arm raised when seen, and could have been throwing the incendiary device into the building. At the time, Lowell had what was called, quote, an arson squad, which they communicated with regularly. The squad was connected to an insurance company that would pro- provide approximate funding to the squad. It was in the insurance company's best interest that arson was determined, so they didn't have to pay out insurance. This could explain why police were just as determined to deem the fire event on Decatur Street an arson case and thus find a perpetrator. Additionally, firefighters and police did not have to prove an arson occurred with actual evidence. And this is back in 1982. Things have changed now. They could simply state that they believed one had occurred. So to be so be to be clear, we need evidence now. At that time in 1982, they did not need to have evidence. They could walk in and they could be taken at their word, like, yep, this looks like an arson, right? Victor was interrogated for. Eight hours after not being able to sleep the night before due to trauma from his experience at the scene of the fire and from hearing the children's screams from within the building. Investigators pressed him using Victor's language barrier to their advantage. He didn't always know what they were talking about and he just wanted to go home. Investigators produced a paper which contained a statement of confession. They told him if he signed the paper, he would be able to go home. Tired and distraught, Victor confessed to the crime. Instead of going home, he was promptly arrested and his life would never be the same again. Despite the lack of evidence of a device or accelerant, Victor Rosario was convicted and sentenced to serve eight concurrent life sentences for the death of eight people, five of which were children. He later stated the hardest part of his ordeal was his mother's heartbreak His mother had traveled from Puerto Rico despite not speaking any English and thought that Victor would be able to come home at some point. Victor had to explain to her that he would never be able to go home. His mother passed away in August of 2007, seven years before Victor's release in 2014. In the first 23 years of his sentence, Victor would work with seven attorneys who perceived him as guilty of the crime. He would go through two unsuccessful parole hearings with the board asking him, quote, if you didn't do it, who did? Victor repeatedly told lawyers that he had seen, quote, snakes and devils in the interrogation room and did not know where he was while he was being questioned. It was not until two attorneys, Andrea Peterson and Lisa Kavanaugh, took on his case that he finally found someone who believed in him and was determined to take the case to pursue justice for him. To further understand this case, I want to discuss a little bit more about what defines wrongful conviction, the common causes for wrongful conviction, and what may have happened here with fire evidence. Northeastern University School of Law defines wrongful conviction as a conviction of a person for a crime that he or she did not commit. Common causes of wrongful conviction include eyewitness misidentification false confessions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, false or misleading forensic evidence and witness perjury. All right, so let's break these down one by one to give you a little bit more idea about what they all contain. So witness misidentification makes up about 28% of all exonerations. Human memory has been proven in psychological studies to be highly imperfect and fragile. Stress also influences recall and lineups can be positioned in a way that can be misleading or misidentifying. Police officers can also influence a witness with comments, body language, or positive feedback during an interview. False confessions make up about 12% of wrongful convictions nationwide, physical intimidation, Threats of violence by law enforcement and interrogation techniques that are psychologically coercive are the main contenders here. Young people and those with intellectual disabilities are the most at risk. Police and prosecutorial misconduct makes up about 54% of wrongful convictions nationwide. Witness coercion, fabrication of physical evidence, improper interrogation techniques, improper storage of evidence, and prosecution concealing exculpatory evidence, which is evidence that is in favor of the defendant. All of those contribute to misconduct. False and misleading forensic evidence also makes up about 24% of wrongful convictions. Most disciplines of forensics have been developed by law enforcement without the rigorous testing that would normally do- be done through scientific theory. This had led has led to evidence such as bite marks and microscopic hair comparisons, which are now considered, quote, junk science. Overstating results without knowing potential errors, as well as examination or examiner error, have also contributed. Witness perjury, including false accusation, has resulted in 60% of wrongful convictions. This can most likely happen when there is a plea bargain for a lesser sentence on the table. Lawyers, Organizations such as the Innocence Project and podcasts have devoted their mission to helping expose wrongful conviction cases and help overturn previous rulings resulting in exoneration. So let's go back to Victor's case. As Andrea Peterson began her research into the case, she began to consider fire evidence and we will cover the topic of arson in August. So I I don't want to cover all aspects of arson in this podcast. However, I do want to highlight a few things from this specific case. Andrea reached out to John Lentney to inquire whether or not false fire evidence could have contributed to Rosario's conviction. John had worked for the prosecution as a fire investigator and in 1990 discovered that what he believed about fires was wrong. He immediately hopped onto the Rosario case to support the possibility of false fire evidence. Andrea also called the head of curriculum for fire investigation at the Homeland Security office where firefighters are trained. The head of curriculum laughed to Andrea and said he couldn't help, but would call back in a month when he retired to see if he would, could be of some assistance. Apparently, some things were better said when not employed as head of curriculum. As promised, Andrea received a course outline one month later entitled Myth and Legends in Fire Investigation. Within this document was all evidence based on myth, fully discrediting the investigators in Victor's case. Craig Baylor from Hughes Associates, a private consulting firm which had done experiments proving the amount of accelerant needed in a Molotov cocktail on bare floor, was also weighed in. He determined that a Molotov cocktail thrown on bare wood would burn out in 10 seconds and therefore would not start a fire to the magnitude of the one at Decatur Street. This evidence would have been known at the time of Victor's trial, but three experts had testified otherwise at the trial. In fact, fire investigators had testified contrary to their own slides at the trial. In addition to fire evidence, Andrea looked at eyewitness accounts and the false confession. It was determined that no eyewitness had actually seen Victor throw a flaming bottle or an accelerant. So there was no basis for the witness testimony. The witness had most likely seen Victor breaking a window to allow people from inside to get out. During the trial, a medical expert from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had stated that only a quote, crazy person would have confessed to a crime he did not commit. Police had also admitted that Victor had a quote, breakdown during interrogation. He was described as being on the floor babbling incoherently about the children while clutching a chair leg. Police said he then recovered and resumed his confession. The trial judge ruled that Victor was temporarily psychotic and the confession was voluntary, I assume in a moment of clarity as described by police. By 1985, some states had mandated recording confessions, but in 1982, that was not yet the case. Richard Offshe, who pioneered this work, reviewed trial notes in the Rosario case. He learned that police had put words in Victor's mouth. Another witness, Judith Edesheim, spent months reviewing every medical record she could get from the prison staff. She concluded that Victor was in the throes of delirium tremens, otherwise known as DTs, during the interrogation which would differentiate from a psychotic episode. DTs are caused by alcohol withdrawal and result in the brain not functioning properly. She asked Andrea if this could be possible. So to be clear, Judith was looking at medical records to determine what was going on with uh, Victor Rosario and noted that the timeline, like how he was reacting match the timeline of how DTs progress. And she wondered like, oh, this doesn't look like a psychotic event. It looks like DTs. Is it possible he was undergoing DTs? So after some research, Andrea discovered that Victor indeed had been a heavy drinker and it stopped suddenly after witnessing the deaths in the fire. He had taken these deaths as a warning and had visited a priest for a blessing and a Bible. He immediately gave up drinking and smoking and was under the grip of DTs during the interrogation. Family interviews and medical records show a progression that was exactly in line with the progression of a DT timeline. The translator during interrogation said that Victor was so incoherent by the end of the interrogation that he did not even understand what was being said to him. During the wrongful conviction hearing, Lisa Kavanaugh brought in two fire experts, two medical experts, two investigators, and two family members. These experts and witnesses and Lisa's brilliant delivery of the facts of the case provided argument for a new trial. They won the case for Victor Rosario and helped create new laws to help others in the future. Victor was released from prison after 32 years of confinement and exonerated of the crime in 2017. Victor Rosario recently received a $13 million settlement from the city of Lowell in a civil suit, again, making headlines. Now, I think that was like not too long ago, like maybe the beginning of May 2023 was like very recent that he got the settlement piece. So it took a little while, six years or so to get a settlement from the city, but it did happen. Here's a quote from Rosario. One of the things for me to be able to continue moving forward is basically to learn how to forgive. Because when you forget forgive, you liberate the person that do damage to you. And I learned that. I forgive Because if I don't forgive, who do wrong to me, then my life will always be in prison. I don't want that. I want to be free. The Innocence Project in Massachusetts has six policies in effect at this time. They're working really hard to be sure that a lot of those factors that contribute to Wrongful convictions are cleaned up, so there's less of them going forward. So they've got six policies in effect at this time. During the month of June, just to let you know, they are doubling their gifts, so any donation that's provided them is matched 100. So please consider supporting them. I have a link to their site on my show notes. So if you're if this is something you're passionate about, or this case kind of inspired you to be passionate about it, like check that out. Their website is very comprehensive it has information about this case, other cases, like really great stuff right there. So, some of the work they they have supported has been forensic oversight, evidence preservation, post-conviction DNA, recording of interrogations, and eyewitness ID reform both in 2010 and 2015. So, eyewitness ID is that eyewitness identification. So they had like reform reform action in 2010 and then again in 2015 to redefine it. They are currently working to do a couple of things. And there's more information about each one of these on their website, but they are working to eliminate qualified immunity and police deception during interrogation nationwide and fight for a police accountability and transparency in all 50 states. So qualified immunity is a judicial doctrine developed by the su- Supreme Court in the late 1960s to shield public officials from liability for misconduct, even when they have broken the law. Therefore, the government cannot be held accountable for wrongdoing. So they are looking to eliminate that. So if the government or a government official does something against the law, they need to be brought up for that. Now, police deception, if you're interested, if you listen to podcasts, and true crime podcasts in particular, you know about this, but police at this point in time, in most states, can lie, completely outright lie to you during an interrogation. And they have used that technique to be able to... Arrest somebody, they'll lie. People start doubting themselves, even if they're innocent, and they confess. They can also lie, and someone who's guilty is then confesses to something too. So it works both ways. But that possibility of police actually being to outright lie to you about something is uh, is something they're looking to get to get pulled out. And then police accountability and transparency, like just being uh, making sure that that's all like very, very open and that police are held accountable for misconduct. So there is indeed a cost to communities when any member of that community is wrongfully convicted of a crime. The monetary cost is around $6.1 million or approximately $1,334 per day of prison time per inmates. The largest settlement ever received for a wrongful conviction was $20 million and was provided to Juan Rivera, who was wrongfully convicted three, three times for the 1992 rape and murder of 11-year-old Holly Staker. And this was obtained by coerced confession. This is not a New England-based case, just to let you know, but it is the, the highest settlement ever in a wrongful conviction case. So in addition to the fiscal effects, a wrongful conviction results in an innocent per- innocent person's life being stolen from them, a c- criminal going free, and countless psychological effects that a confined person who has committed a crime may experience. In this particular case, it would have been determined later on, like recently, that arson was not a factor. I couldn't find any information about what could have been the factor if arson wasn't the factor. That might be something we'll never know. It's kind of like what kind of information was taken down. doesn't seem like they needed to have any evidence base to say it was arson. So they may not have like tried to disprove themselves either. I'm not sure. So it in this particular case, it could have been an accident from within the house even. Right, So it didn't mean it was actually arson. It's like an outside person coming in and setting fire to the building with people in it. It could have been an accident in the home that occurred. So I hate to say natural because I don't really find that to be natural, but more of a natural effect or incident versus a criminal incident, probably more non-criminal is a better term for that. So what's going on with Victor Rosario, Uh, Victor Rosario is currently working to support those who have been wrongfully convicted. And he's been doing the census release in 2014. He also works to transition those who, who have been confined to prison back into society. Cause you can imagine that must be really difficult to first go in and then it's a different society in and of itself. And then to come out of there and be able to be out in the world again, that transition. So he works with people on that um, and he has experience with it, right? So he's gonna know how to help people out in the best way possible. So I hope that in telling his story that we can learn from this, we can further understand why wrongful convictions occur, and we can work to do better when considering, considering criminal acts, evidence, and legal involvement. So what I have to say to you is ask questions. Like when you hear about a case, ask questions. Please don't assume anything. Ask questions. Ask lots of questions. Thank you so much for listening today. We are going to dive into the psychology of captivity in our wrap up episode next week. And you don't want to miss this one because we're going to be talking about how each one of these cases the kidnapping of Abby Hernandez, this wrongful conviction case of Victor Rosario, And even looking at Hannah Dustin's case and captivity during a time of war. So we'll be looking at all of that and seeing what are the psychological effects of those times in captivity. And then also, what are other things that might not, we might not immediately consider captivity, but are under the realm of captivity? Like, how can we, how do we keep our, selves captive. So I'm really excited to dive into that and look at it from the lens of um, how it affects our community and in the realm of true crime. So that'll be next week. I'm really looking forward to it. And as always at the end of the month, I offer a bonus episode on the Patreon. So definitely consider supporting that. Hop in for that bonus episode. And I always keep my bonus episode in line with the theme for the month. So you can hop in there and, um, get another case if you want to, right? So thank you so much. I'll see you next week until then be good to one another. Do you love the show support motherhood is murder on Patreon and get some awesome perks, including a shout out on the show, bonus content, and more. We appreciate the support so much, and it allows me to offer a case to you each and every week. Other ways to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate all the fabulous feedback, and it ensures people will listen and help families who need it most. Motherhood is Murder is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Cation. Music by Alexi Action. Check out the show notes for a list of my sources and ways to support your community.